You're listening to the National Trust podcast. I'm James Grasby. I'm a curator for the National Trust. And in this season, I'll be your guide through some of the Trust's amazing houses and collections. My colleague, Alan Power, will take you through some very special gardens. And Kate Martin will be walking you through some of the Trust's most beautiful natural landscapes. In this episode, I'm headed to Red House, once home to one of Britain's most celebrated designers of the 20th century, William Morris. Famous for his iconic floral wallpaper designs, Morris's prints and patterns are still in fashion today. Seen on cushions, curtains, bags and books, you may well have seen a William Morris print before. Morris was a prolific designer, associated with the arts and crafts movement. We'll be exploring the life and work of this incredible man through the home he occupied for five years. Morris and his family lived here between 1860 and 1865, a pivotal time for his career. The story is intriguing and the house is spectacular. So let's go and see. It's a gloriously sunny day. I've just had a very straightforward train journey from Charing Cross through the leafy suburbs of southeast London, 10 miles from the, from the centre of things. Come down a very pretty little avenue, a little boulevard of sort of 1930s and 40s houses and arrived at a brown gate that opens onto the most extraordinary surprise. I wasn't expecting this at all, the scale of Red House compared to its neighbours. And it's really quite a substantial place. I mean, they must have been expecting friends here. <laughs> it's enormous. Brick house with a steep, tiled roof. Chimneys in brick that seem to go up to the clouds, they're so high. With very pointy chimney pots. It's extremely elegant and quite pared back. And we're just walking along the gravel drive through a very pretty little garden. It's a very enclosed garden. I mean, it's not large by any means, so you've got mature trees and some large shrubs and these rather rambling, romantic beds of peonies and all sorts of things. Right, I've come round the corner to a very cool porch on this gloriously sunny day. And I'm going to knock on the door. James, I'm Ellie Bagnall, house steward here at Red House. I'm very thrilled to be here. Yeah, but it is a lovely day as well. It's a dream of a day, <laughs> and it's a, the garden is looking sensational, isn't it's it? fabulous, yes. We have a team of 15 volunteers who uh, help make it look absolutely magical. Is this how it may have looked in Morris's time? To a certain extent, it does, but we've lost a lot. Consecutive owners have added rose gardens and much more formal bedding. In Morris's time, it would have been much more of a cottage garden. We've got a very beautifully clipped lawn. It's heaven, isn't it? A little bit of heaven. It certainly is. Tucked away in the suburbs of South London. Now, look, I'd love to see the house. Can we have a look round? Will you show me? You can. Come on in. Thank you very much. medieval-looking tiles and an enormous door with massive wrought iron hinges and into a very pretty hallway. My goodness! And I can see some Morris wallpaper. 
Yes, there is Morris wallpaper, but it wouldn't have been there when Morris was here. This uh, is later editions. And it was at Red House that he started designing wallpaper. So this is the very start of that story. And a series of one, two, three, four tall stained glass windows. Are these Morris designs? They are indeed. So the patterns we have are leaves and flowers in between uh, little birds. And they were created as a bit of a trial and they later went into production from his firm because they were such a success. I'm not surprised, they're absolutely divine. I mean, they're comical, almost sort of light-hearted, expressive, characterful images as a cockerel and a stork. And what's that seabird? Looks like a gannet in outline in black and enamel and yellow glaze. They're very pretty. Ellie, we've crossed the landing into another room. I guess this was uh, designed as a bedroom with a view of a most enchanting garden. So when this house was built in 1859, it was the year that Jane and Morris wed. So Morris had fallen in love with Jane. She was this tall, slim and exotic looking, very different from the conventional beauty standards of the day. And Morris was immediately transfixed by her. His only ever um, easel painting is of Jane, called La Belle Azote, and on the back of it he writes, I cannot paint you, but I love you, in this shy gesture of love to this incredibly strong and powerful woman. They go on to marry, move into Red House, and have two children, Jenny and Mae Morris, who would have slept in this room here. <laughs> It's all very pared back and austere. I mean, thinking of what was happening in architecture in the sort of height of Victoria's reign, it was a sort of confection of every conceivable design all massed together in one place. And Morris seems to have gone absolutely the other way. Yes, Red House is definitely uh, a reaction against what was happening at the time and what he saw around him. He chose specifically to move out of London into the fresh air and it was a reaction against the mass production and industrialisation that he saw around him. He wanted to create a brotherhood of artists and reunite the craftsmen with that pleasure of creating something, moving away from the idea of mass production and utilitarian items. So Red House is very much a celebration of craftsmanship and how things are made. So it's not full of lots of little things, but everything that is here is beautifully finished, beautifully designed and has a level of detail in it. So things were handcrafted. I mean, he conceived of the idea of a designer craftsman, somebody who not only designed but made. Am I right? Yes, you are. He looked back to the medieval times and Middle Ages and had this kind of idealised view that everything there was, there was a value on craftsmanship, there was a sense of community and a pleasure in making that we had lost somewhere along the way. And he was trying to recreate that here at Red House. He wanted things to be made with care and with love and with passion. And these things he wasn't seeing in the centre of London in the factories at the time. I understand Morris was very interested, I mean, over a long period of time, really from his formative years in, in ancient things. He was interested in archaeology, fascinated with medieval architecture. Where did all that come from? 
Well, it's said that even as a young child, he read books of medieval knights and chivalry. And then when he went to University at Oxford, he immersed himself in this landscape of all things medieval, of the romantic movement. He made friends there and they traveled across Europe looking at medieval cathedrals and kind of building this well of knowledge um, and this idealized version of what he thought the Middle Ages were. His idea of medieval England came from Geoffrey Chaucer and Arthurian legends of chivalry and idealism and romanticism, not the realities of, of the Black Death and these terrible working conditions. He happily skims over those with his rose-tinted glasses. So Ellie, with all these principles and romantic ideas and deeply felt political and social ideals too, how did he realise his, his dream at Red House? How did he go about making it? Well, the best person to answer that is Megan Tanner, the general manager here. She'll be able to tell you about the next chapter here at Red House. Megan, I'm intrigued by this place. Was it a greenfield site that, that Morris chose for his new house with his new wife? Originally, it was Kentish orchards as far as the eyes could see. So he started from scratch. It was a design that was conceived by him and his friend, Philip Webb. It was indeed. They were actually on a boat trip down the Seine at the time. He asked Philip Webb to build him a house, a very medieval in spirit. Uh, and it was him and all of his friends who kind of very much came together to, uh, to build what, what we see here. So the house was really a collaboration between a, a group of incredibly artistic friends at the time known as the Pre-Raphaelites. So people like Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who was one of the most renowned uh, artists of his time, as, as well as people like Edward Byrne-Jones and his wife Georgiana. Their work can all be seen here in the in designs and also in the paintings on, on the fixed furniture as well as on the walls. So Rossetti was a, was a huge fan of what was done here and he in fact went on to say that he felt that Red House and visiting here, that he felt it was more of a, a poem than a house and he felt it was really a, an expression of artistic merit as well as a, a home. Morris moved into this house in the summer of 1860 and really from this point, as I understand it, his career blossomed and I'm very keen to hear a little bit more about that story. My name's Robin Finney and I am the House and Gardens Manager here at Red House. So this was the origin then of his career. He builds his dream house. Tell me what happened then. His career really began to take off. Yeah, so it was very much the process of building and decorating the house, which is the start of Morris & Co. This kind of mass-produced stuff that was on the market then to furnish houses and was just very the opposite of what he liked. He couldn't find anything that he thought was of a good enough quality to put in Red House. So they design everything, they make everything, they paint everything themselves. And that's what makes them think, oh, do you know what? We could, we could produce this for people. We could bring quality and beauty to people's houses and that is the beginning in 1862 of Morris & Co. 
So the wallpaper is quite clever and that's what really surprises people when they come here because we immediately go, William Morris didn't have wallpaper in his own home. He didn't like it. Everything was painted on the wall. So I think you're seeing kind of a very much a financial business-like mind there of kind of, it was all hand printed, but of that kind of off the shelf, you can choose which pattern you want, but they were very much creating a bespoke service for the furniture and those things. And there's a paradox here, isn't there, that here was Morris very keen to get back to handwork and designer craftspeople making bespoke furniture and decorative schemes and so on, but then begins to mass-produce textiles and, and wallpapers. He wasn't kind of making bespoke wallpapers for people, but it's also important to remember that everything is still handmade. It is all block-printed. We are lucky enough to have some of the wooden blocks in the studio, so yeah. I can show you them now. I would love to see them. Have you come into Morris's st studio? We have come into Morris's studio, and the thing that immediately hits you in this room is it's just absolutely flooded by light. It's, I think, possibly the lightest room I've ever been in. We have on display here a couple of the wood blocks that would have been used to hand print the wallpaper. So you can see this kind of beautifully made wood with it all hand carved in there and how that would have transferred onto the wallpapers. This is an original block. This is an original block. Original block. Yes. So this, I suppose it's, what, um, 60 centimetres square, I suppose, yeah. with, with straighter edges down either side. And what we've got incised into the wood, carved into the wood, is part of a repeating pattern yeah. for, a, for a wallpaper. Yes. So this surface would have been rolled? Rolled with the paint and then placed onto the paper and then repeated, as you said, Whoa. all done by hand. Like most of Morris's wallpapers, they are inspired by nature. So that one of the first um, wallpaper prints that he designed is called Trellis. Um, and that shows kind of a trellis with roses growing up it. That was inspired by the garden at Red House, so looking out onto the, the garden. So very much when you look at the wallpaper block, you've got the wood structure and then the very ornate hand-carved designs and they are very floral. So there's kind of this flowers in the middle and greenery and it is very much that nature-inspired, bringing nature inside. And that is a motif that goes through all of Morris's patterns. And where did Morris & Co start up? They had a shop, I understand it, in, in central London, in Bloomsbury. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. So they had a shop in Bloomsbury, and obviously Morris and Jane are living here. The Byrne Joneses, the Rossettis are coming down on the weekend, and Morris is commuting. So it's hard enough these days sometimes by Southeastern Rail, <laughs> but it was even harder then. So there's a two-mile walk, or he would probably go by carriage to Abbey Wood, where you would get the train, which would take another maybe over an hour into Hoburn and then over to Bloomsbury so he was not here a lot of the time it was a very lonely place for Jane to be once the firm took off and so that's when the challenges came of running that business in London and living here just became it wasn't really doable 
but they didn't want to let go of the dreams. So they were going to move the whole thing down here and extend the house, but that didn't happen. And that's when they finally give up on, on Red House and do move in above the shop in London. Well, it's been a most wonderful visit. I'm bowled over by this place and on a dream of a day. Just going to wander off and have a cup of tea in the garden amongst the roses. If we go round the corner, I think there's a bench. Oh, look, William Morris would approve of this scene. There's a woman sitting in the shade of the strawberry tree doing a drawing of his house. I'm going to go over and see what she's doing. So sorry to interrupt your drawing. What, what brought you to Red House today? Well, I'm actually a guide in the U.S. at a museum called the Yale Center for British Art, and we have the largest collection of English art outside of England. You know, we have works by William Morris and Edward Byrne-Jones, and so I really had to come and see this place that I've, you know, known about for so long but haven't been to before, so. It's a bit of a pilgrimage. A bit of a, yes, absolutely. Now, look, tell me what you found. Have you, have you found what you expected? Oh, it's more beautiful than I imagined. I mean, and I was told I would love it and it would be beautiful, but especially the gardens are amazing. And so it's all been wonderful. And the house is just, I mean, I can see why he loved it. It's so beautiful. And what does it feel like to be here at this sort of hotbed of creativity and this realization of Morris's dream in front of you? It just it brings it alive to me. It brings him as a person alive to me, and and the romance of it all. Just to to live life in this way, this dream that he had. And it's an extraordinary thing here. Us sitting on the lawn, which yes. and William Morris and Burn Jones and Dante Gabriel Rossetti have all known this place, as we are experiencing it pretty much today. It's sort of haunting, isn't it? It is. It's if you think about it. No, it, it really is. I mean, the way you're sitting there, I'm sure that's the way they sat, you know, and um, just and just enjoyed this beautiful place. That's why you have to come to a place like this, right? To experience it, to experience the setting that they lived in and that they created these works, and you know, and it was well worth the trip to come. It feels like a bit of a medieval dream world here, and I can see exactly and get a real sense of what Morris was seeking and indeed to a degree what he found. Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. Join us in two weeks' time when we'll be returning to Red House to uncover the secrets behind a wardrobe. Don't forget to subscribe to the series and do give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also check out our podcast hub at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Until then, from me, James Grasby, goodbye.